Well, amen. As we sing that as a prayer this morning, we certainly ask the Lord to speak to us through his word today. And as such, I want to encourage you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 2. John chapter 2, our text will be verses 1 through 11 today as we begin a four-week series in John's Gospel looking at some of the miracles that took place, some of the signs that Jesus gave, performed through these miraculous events to teach us more about who he is and what he's called us to do in following him. As you make your way there to John chapter 2, I just want to just say a brief word of reminder to you. So if you're a member here at Redeeming Grace, this is a message for you. If you're not a member, you're visiting, you're a guest, uh, you can just uh, pray for these members that I'm about to address, uh, not in a bad way. Uh, as you know, church, uh, uh, it's been almost three years, three years ago that we began a, um, a journey that we've called Putting Down Roots. Uh, I know you have often heard about that. And so uh, next month, we're a month away from finishing up our formal initiative, capital campaign effort called Putting Down Roots. And so we're a month out. But almost three years ago, you as a church family committed to giving $1.3 million to this Putting Down Roots initiative, and much of that fruit is being uh, revealed uh, before our eyes there on the hill as we're building our facility and seeing much of that come to fruition uh, as the Lord continues to lead us and guide us. As we think about this church putting down roots in this community to continue exalting the Lord, equipping disciples, and engaging the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is indeed an opportunity for us as a church to see the Lord do that here in this community. And so uh, three years ago, as I said, you committed $1.3 million above and in addition to your normal giving. As of today, March the 27th, you have given of that commitment 1.2 million 400 I don't know how to say these numbers 1,242,594 dollars of that and so we're about sixty thousand dollars shy of meeting that goal uh, and so if anybody has 60 grand just sitting around you can knock that out this morning I know inflation and all but you know if you have it uh, you're welcome to give it uh, but I just want to say that just as a reminder and an encouragement to you because that's a lot of money uh, not only have you given that amount of money over the last three years, and we're just close to getting that goal, and I pray that we're able to meet that goal, if not exceed it, in, in the coming weeks, and so we're looking forward to that. But just thinking about how you've been generous in your giving, not only that last year, just our normal budget giving was the highest giving year ever for this church. And so just it, it, to me, it's just a reminder of your generosity and your kindness, your extravagance, and just and just showing how much you love what the Lord's doing here and how much uh, devotion you give to the Lord, even through your giving. It says something, and I just want to thank you for that. And just encourage us all to keep going and keep giving. Let's meet that goal. Let's even go above and beyond it uh, because it's going to definitely help us position ourselves uh, for the future. And so we're really thankful, looking forward to that time together. I'll say more about that in a month uh, as we uh, have a celebration service and as we think ahead of what the Lord has uh, for this church. Uh, and so that's coming up very soon. I do want to now just remind us we're here. John's Gospel, chapter 2, that's our text this morning. And now I want to read from this chapter, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. 
Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We ask now that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Teach us, Lord, and make us more like Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. As you think about a sign, signs that give you directions, we encounter signs daily, don't we? Regularly. And they're helpful. They're informative. In fact, it would be difficult in life to function without signs. It could be confusing. They help us drive safely. They help us find the right elevator in the hospital. Right? They help us navigate our way through the grocery store. I very much depend upon those signs when I get sent to the grocery store. In fact, I don't think they're specific enough to tell me what I'm supposed to find in this aisle. We're dependent upon them. Signs convey important information and point beyond themselves to an ultimate destination. As we turn our attention to this passage of Scripture this morning, we indeed have what we call a biblical sign. It was Anthony Silvagio that wrote, Signs also display a significant role in the Bible. As with the signs we encounter daily, the signs in Scripture are meant to convey information to us and point beyond themselves. With biblical signs, however, the information conveyed is not merely how to find the right elevator or how to locate the proper exit on the expressway. Instead, the biblical signs convey vital spiritual truths about the nature of God and the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's where we're going to spend these next four weeks, working through some of the signs that we have in John's gospel, miraculous things that Jesus did that were described as signs, pointing beyond the sign itself to something greater and of more significance. This morning we come to the very first sign. We're told there in verse 11 that it was the first sign that Jesus did there at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. The sign of turning water into wine is a sign that shines light on who Jesus is. And as we walk through this passage this morning, we're going to see three things in particular this sign does as it points us to Jesus, as it helps shine light, really pulls the curtain back a bit and shows us a little glimpse of of who Jesus is as he begins his messianic role as Messiah and Savior. Three things that we want to walk through this morning regarding this sign. First of all, we see that this sign reveals 
the Messianic age. This sign reveals the Messianic age. The context here is a wedding, a wedding in Cana. We're not told who the wedding's for, who's involved. There's speculation, but it's pure speculation. We don't know. We're not told who the bride and the bridegroom are. What we are told, though, is that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there. And by implication, she seems to have some role, maybe, in the planning and coordination of this wedding. But we also know not only is Mary there, Jesus and his disciples are there as attendees. Don't seem to have a particular distinct role. They're just there attending. And so you have this context of a wedding. But it's important to keep in mind that even though the context here is a wedding, the, the wedding in this account is not the main focus. It serves as the, the backdrop, the context, if you will, of what's going on here, the thing that Jesus is doing. The focus, the primary focus, is Jesus himself. As the first of the recorded miracles in the Gospels, we do have what we could say is a miracle that takes place here. It's a miracle. Something miraculous happens as the water is converted into wine in a, in a very short fashion. But we know that it's more than a miracle. Again, some translations use, and I think rightly, the word sign. It's the same word, if you remember in Matthew's gospel, when the Pharisees are demanding a sign from Jesus. It's the same concept here. It's, it's a sign. It's something more than just the miracle itself. Then, so what that means for us, then, is, is that this, this miracle that takes place here in Cana at this wedding is a sign pointing to something significant. It's directing our attention not just to a wedding, but to something with greater importance that's taking place. This is where having a good foundation in the Old Testament is important. If you think the Old Testament is just an ancient text that's really not important today, you're wrong. Without a good understanding of the Old Testament, you'll never rightly understand the New Testament. And so Old Testament foundation is critical. So if you go back to the Old Testament prophets, you will remember they, they warned the people time after time after time again, would warn the people about their sin and about their disobedience, about the breaking of covenant with God and how they would be judged if they didn't repent. But one of the things that the prophets did, in addition to warning, they also offered hope. Many times with the warning, they would also provide hope of God's coming deliverance, and especially in exile, the prophets would speak into exile and affirm the people and promise them what was to come when God would deliver them once again. And when they would speak this way, the prophets would often speak of a day in the future when the people would return from captivity and be given their land that their forefathers had enjoyed. You could read a variety of different prophets, but I want to, to read a couple of texts from two of the prophets. You can go to Jeremiah 31, and Jeremiah has a lot to say about this coming day. But I want you to hear what Isaiah says of that coming day. In Isaiah chapter 25, we see, we see the following. It says, Isaiah writes, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, and aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. 
He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. He describes this coming day of hope and deliverance as a feast. He's, he's describing what this feast will be like in terms of food and wine, a, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. Then you turn to the prophet Amos. In Amos chapter 9, verses 13 through 15, this is what the prophet Amos had to say. He said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with it. He goes on to say, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the, out of, out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. So the prophets are speaking of that day, or in those days, as they're looking ahead to this, this deliverance that God is going to bring. And we know, if you read the Bible, that there are multiple horizons upon which God promises and brings deliverance until his full and final deliverance when we're with him forever in God's everlasting kingdom. But this was a day that the prophets pointed to, a day of messianic fulfillment. And oftentimes, one of the marks of that day's arrival and certainly culmination, would be this descriptive language of wine dripping from the mountains and flowing from the hills. So when you hear this kind of prophetic language, and you have now the first sign in the New Testament that Jesus performs at a wedding, he turns water into wine. He's not merely saving a wedding party from an embarrassing moment. He's making a biblical statement. And that statement is this, that this messianic age that was prophesied in the Old Testament has now dawned. Messianic age is what the entire Old Testament prepares us for. It's the time when God would fulfill his redemptive purposes and send forth the Messiah into the world to bring redemption. And what we have here is a little snapshot, a little glance of, of what Jesus is doing. It's really an announcement of sorts that this new age, the coming of the Messiah, has come, and God's redemptive purposes are about to be fulfilled. Now, while this messianic age has dawned, we know that the culmination of the kingdom of God is still to come. So we live in this already reality, but it's not yet. The reality of God's kingdom is now, it's present. For those who say the kingdom of God is only future, I think they're missing a lot of Bible. So the kingdom of God is present, God, Jesus, the king, is reigning and ruling now, presently. But yet the fullness of that kingdom is still to come. So the kingdom is now, but it's not yet. And as you think about this new day that has dawned, the coming of Jesus into the world, the king of kings to come and to bring the reality of God's kingdom into the world, I think oftentimes for disciples, for followers of Jesus, whether in his day or our day, it can be difficult to lose sight of what is and what is to come regarding the kingdom. There's much in this world, conflicts, war, ungodliness, on and on we could, we could go, that often cloud out the reality 
of all that God is doing in the world today. And so when Jesus comes, he, he comes into this, this scene of a wedding, Cana and Galilee. Remember the, the broader geographical political context that's going on. Rome's kind of ruling the day. People are in bondage and under oppression because of the, the heavy hand of Rome. And now Jesus comes in and through this, this subtle announcement, through this sign, through this miracle, he is, he is declaring that a new day has dawned. He's pointing to a greater kingdom. And as we look back to a text like John chapter 2, having a bit of Old Testament backdrop to support it, we see how God has been at work all along to bring about his purposes in the world, and as such, he can be trusted. And I think it's helpful for us to see this, just to kind of have a big picture view for a moment, to see what's going on from an aerial viewpoint, because it reminds us that even though we grow weary, discouraged, misguided with our hope in this world, it kind of recenters us and reminds us that, no, God is always doing what he said. Just this morning, I was reading the book of Joshua in my personal time. I've been reading through, uh, kind of chronologically through the Bible, and, and was reading through Joshua this morning. And I finished a section in Joshua this morning that documents Israel's taking possession of the land. So they go to the land, they start to take possession like God had instructed them. And so there in chapter 19 of Joshua, after they've taken possession of the promised land, the scripture says this. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them. For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Not one word had failed. Everything God had said, everything God had promised had come to pass. Maybe not in, in their time frame, maybe not in the exact ways they were hoping it would, but they could trust God's word. They could trust that everything he promised came to pass. And that's exactly, I think, big picture-wise what we see here as Jesus burst in on the scene and as he makes this, as he brings about this miracle, this sign in Cana, it's a statement that this new age has dawned. God's promised it all along, and now it has arrived through the Messiah. Second thing that we see, not only does it point us to the messianic age, it points us to messianic glory. Again, the context is a wedding. And weddings back then, they would last upwards to a week. Guests coming and going throughout that week, I, mean, I think four hours is a long time, but a week. And to run out of something like wine at a wedding celebration that's a week long would have been like a social taboo. It would have been an, a significant embarrassment for the wedding party to have run out of food or wine or, any, or anything like that. And the custom at a wedding was that they would often... Up front, offer the best quality wine, the best quality, the best tasting wine. The, the strongest wine would be served first, and then over time, as the week would progress, the lesser quality would be served. So, here in this text, we know that Mary's at this wedding, Jesus and his disciples are at this wedding, and that's exactly what happens. They're not full, they're not finished with the week of celebration. 
They're not through the festivities, and now there's no wine. The jars are empty. And Mary sees that. She sees the problem. You see it in verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. We have a problem, is implied behind that. There's a problem. We're out of wine, and that's going to be bad for this wedding celebration. Now, it's important that, that you see that she doesn't tell him to do something. She just merely announces the problem. They have no wine. She merely makes the problem known. And Jesus' initial response is this. Verse 4. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, you hear that response in... <laughs> You hear Jesus respond, woman, that, that, sounds, like, ooh, that, sounds, that sounds rude, that sounds a little rough, uh, and we wouldn't speak that way today for sure. Um, but here in this context, in this culture, it would have been, and there's really not an equivalent English way of, of, of putting it, maybe a formal ma'am or something like that, but that's not exact, but, but you get the picture here. It, it was really a courteous expression of polite distance. What Jesus is doing, he, I mean, this is his mom, this is Mary, coming to Jesus saying, we're out of wine, and he says, woman. He doesn't say, mom, now's not the time, that's not, that's not the tone here we're getting from Jesus. He, he, he uses this, this expression of polite distance, likely an acknowledgement that, that there's now this, this, new, this new responsibility that, that he has, no longer as the son of Mary but now as the son of God. She was the one who had borne him, nursed him, taught him. But now Jesus, through this expression, reveals that he is, he is under the authority of another. And he is there to accomplish something far greater, infinitely greater than merely supplying drink at a wedding. In reference to my hour, he says, my hour has not yet come. It's a reference. It's a, that, that phrase is often used in reference to Jesus' death. It could be even as a whole death, resurrection, and ascension, kind of that hour of the full redemption being accomplished. He says, it's not time for me to die. That's basically what he's saying. Keep in mind also that throughout his ministry, Jesus adapted wedding imagery as a symbol for the consummation of the Messianic age. So think about all that's going on here just with what Jesus would often do as he, as he spoke of that banquet that's to come, a wedding feast that's to come, when the bride, the church, celebrates with her groom, Jesus, in eternity. So, so take that with also the Old Testament backdrop of, of wine dripping from the mountains feasting on wine and, 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 and food just as, as the coming of the kingdom comes. And so you have this, this reference of a wedding and now wine, these messianic images that were, that were at play here all throughout this text. So as he considers this, this problem, understanding the Old Testament symbolism of wine the inauguration of the Messianic age, he, he simply says, my hour has not yet come. It's not time for me to accomplish the redemptive work by dying for sinners. 
that time hasn't come. Because Jesus understands, he, he, he sees that there's a bit of a crisis here because of social expectations. But Jesus has a deeper crisis in view, a greater problem in mind when he's confronted with this situation. However, he goes on to supply the wine for this wedding. And we see two things about Jesus as he does this. First of all, we see his exclusive power. If you jump ahead in the text to verse 11, you kind of get the, the point of all of this. In verse 11, we read, This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So his glory was on display here. His glory would be ultimately revealed at the cross, followed by resurrection and ascension when he was glorified and back in heaven with his father. But as Jesus would go about his earthly ministry, he would often give us glimpses of his glory. He would pull back the curtain for a moment through a miracle. And he would show us little glimpses of who he truly is. And that's what we see here. He, he pulls back the curtain a bit and through this miracle he shows that he He's not just another wedding guest. You think about this miracle that takes place. This is not something any person at that wedding could have done. Only God could do this. This was divine activity as this miracle happens and the conversion of molecules and fermentation takes place. In a moment, the miracles Jesus performs here and throughout his earthly ministry were never merely just demonstrations as if he's trying to impress people. That's the way people often took it and they would follow him because they wanted to see another trick, right? That was never Jesus' intent. His intent through miracles, through signs, was to point to something far greater and more significant. A deeper reality. Through his glory being on display, through his power being demonstrated he's revealing something of his character, that he is God in the flesh, that he is divine. As the passage progresses, we see that both Mary and the disciples begin to see this. In response to, to her request, Jesus does exactly what we see. He turns the water into wine. But we also see how Mary goes from approaching Jesus simply as his mother to responding to something a bit different as she encourages the disciples even to do whatever he tells you in verse 5. There, there's a, there seems to be a subtle shift in her. These small details of the passage show us how the spotlight of this narrative is on Jesus and no one else. It shows us that Jesus is divine. It shows us that he is powerful. That he can speak a word. That he, can, that he can make things happen. And as a result, he ought to be followed. He ought to be believed and trusted. Notice, too, where this power is being put on display. This glory is being manifest. It's at a wedding in the small town of Cana. Jesus... He's not in some palace before Herod or one of the, the great kings of that world. He's, he's not before a, a large crowd. He's at a small town wedding. 
performing really a a behind-the-scenes kind of miracle for a small group of people. And as he does this, he's showing that not only is his power on display, but his power is on display, even miraculously so, for ordinary people. Meeting normal needs in miraculous fashion for ordinary people, and he does so with abundance. You see his exclusive power, but you also see his generous provision. This miracle, as we see in verses 6 and following, results in Jesus providing what would be today's equivalent, 120 to 180 gallons of the best quality wine. 20 to 30 gallons per jar. The sheer quantity of wine shows us that Jesus is lavish, Generous in his provision. Again, it would have been an embarrassment for this this family to have run out of wine at this celebration. So Jesus does replenish the wine in miraculous fashion. We're told specifically how that happens. We're told here that there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. See that in verse 6. Each of them holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants did, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor. But you've kept the good wine until now. These six stone water jars, formerly for the Jewish rites of purification, now filled to the brim with water converted into wine. There's a lot of symbolism taking place there. People point out how the empty water jar shows the emptiness of, of, of these ceremonial and purification laws that really had no power and now was being replaced with the wine, this new wine of, of, of messianic fulfillment. But what we see here is this, when Jesus turns the water into wine, these vessels are filled not with water but with wine. He's making a clear statement that the old order of Jewish law and custom was being replaced with something far better. The miracle shows that Jesus gives both quality and quantity. Stronger wine would have been served first and then the lesser quantity. That's how it would happen. You give the good wine up front, and then as the week went on, the lesser quality would, would be served. But when Jesus supplies, he doesn't replenish. He, he doesn't go to the store and just buy a cheap $6 bottle of barefoot wine to replenish. No, he gives the good stuff. He provides the best. And that's what Jesus does. He gives us the best. Even the symbolism here is pointing to the the new wine of the kingdom that what would be provided in the new covenant, replacing the ceremonial customs of the day, was greater than that which was given under the old. So much here to, to, to just show us what Jesus is doing. The Bible is clear when it comes to wine and other fermented drink that drunkenness is clearly prohibited in the Bible. It's clear. Drunkenness is sin. But the Bible does not forbid the drinking of wine in moderation. 
Indeed, what you see from the passages of Scripture in the Old Testament, for example, Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15, that wine is given to gladden the heart of man. Wine is often seen as a symbol of joy in Scripture. It's a reminder to us here that when Jesus provides and he turns the water into wine, he provides abundantly, and in his provision, there is the abundance of joy. When Jesus provides, he provides abundantly, lavishly, generously. And in his provision, we often find that he gives us much joy. Jesus is demonstrating that he is the one who gives joy in abundance and overflowing. It's a lesson for us that, that though we often seek to find joy and abundance in other ways, that only in Christ, only in Jesus will there be joy and generous abundance. Maybe you, maybe you continue to seek that in other ways. Maybe, maybe you continue to seek it in, in, in your work, in your things that you have, things that you own, how much money you have or how much you have here or certain relationships or, or um, there's an infinite number of ways we try to, to, to establish and cultivate joy in our lives. And you may even find that there are plenty of things that bring you happiness that have nothing to do with Jesus. But friends, that happiness will always be temporary. Always. It's not lasting. And what Jesus is revealing here as he, as he provides this wine in abundance at this wedding, he's, and he's, he's saying, not only am I the Messiah that has come, but I am the one who gives abundantly and joyfully through all of this imagery. Only Jesus can give you lasting joy. Because Jesus is the one who came to manifest his glory. He came to give us himself. And then third, it results in messianic hope. If you were to jump to the end of John and read chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, the end of the gospel says this, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The purpose for these signs, like the miracle at Cana, the purpose for them being recorded in this gospel was so that you could read it and see who Jesus is so that you could believe in him and follow him. And that's what happens. There does seem to be, though, a bit of a contrast in response to Jesus regarding this miracle. Notice how in verses 7 through 10, Jesus instructs the servants to take jars of water and fill them which they did to the brim, likely from a well. And it immediately becomes apparent that this was not mere water, but good quality wine. We've seen the miracle. So the servants, think about the servants that were at the wedding. They go and do what Jesus told them to do. They fill the, the water, the, the, the vessels with water that it's now converted into wine. 
The master of the feast has no idea any of this has happened. He just tells you, wow, you've got the good stuff. But the servants know, the servants know that was water. <laughs> that was water. I put water in that jar. But there's not a word about the servants believing in Jesus. Not a word about the servants following Jesus. The servants experienced this miracle firsthand, and yet there's no indication of faith on their part. But when the disciples saw it, the text tells us they believed in him. Servants see the sign, but not the glory. The disciples see the sign, and by faith beheld his glory. Not perfectly, they believed in him. That's exactly the point of all of Jesus' signs. They point to him as God's Messiah, as the object of who we should believe in and trust. While such signs were given that would lead many to faith, we know that the, the reality is it doesn't always guarantee faith. Their purpose was to magnify Jesus, to hold him out as God's Messiah, the one who gives ultimate joy and abundance. And some will believe in him and follow him, but others will not. There's no mention here of the impact the sign had on the master of the banquet. He likely didn't even know any better. The servants, the wedding party, only the disciples are recorded as those who believed in him. Even though many benefited from Jesus' miracle, only some believed. Friend, as you hear that, I wonder how that falls on your ears. Because we too have encountered many things in this world, whether miraculously or just as a gift of God's common grace. God's common grace being given to us as humanity. Christian or not, experiencing the blessings firsthand from, from God himself. How many of us are here today seeing from the passage Jesus performing this miracle, experiencing the blessings of God firsthand even in our own lives, and yet you still sit here today not trusting in Jesus? Maybe you sat here a long time knowing I really should get around to following him. And you're not promised another day. Why would you put that off? Why would, you, why would you simply want to receive the blessings of God and enjoy the kindness of God in his common grace, even miracles at times, and not want to follow Jesus? We are all sinners. And every single one of us will stand before God one day and give account of our lives. And not one of us, not a single one of us, can stand there on that day and say, here's why you should let me in, God, because I did this, this, and this. Not a single person will be able to say that. All of us would be condemned at that moment, but it was because God, in his kindness, sends Jesus, the Messiah, into the world as the Old Testament promised. Jesus pulls back the curtain at this wedding and says, 
The new age is dawned. The new kingdom is arrived. Why would we not want to follow him and find true forgiveness of our sins and life everlasting? And if that is you today, I would just urge you and implore you to look to Jesus Christ. Quit trying to, to, to earn your way somehow with God. It'll never work. Look to Jesus. Understand that he is God's provision for sinners. That he did everything necessary, everything you couldn't, by obeying God, by dying on a cross to be the sacrifice for sin and was raised three days later from the grave, triumphantly, to declare victory over sin, death, and hell once and for all. And if you would simply, if you would just simply believe in him, that's why the signs are here. The sign is telling you, believe in Jesus. Trust in him. Believe in him. He's the Messiah. He's come to bring a kingdom that you, you can't outdo. Follow him. Friend, if that is you, if you've sat here, if you're new to us and you're not trusting in Jesus, trust in him today. Believe in him. He is the only savior for sinners. Follow him and he will give you all you need for this life and in the life to come. Brothers and sisters, maybe... Maybe this sign is just an opportunity for you to be reminded of how generous God is to you. And that you would just simply step back and see God did exactly what he said. You've been trusting in that. The disciples, it wasn't as if they were converted. They've, they've been believing in him. Go back to chapter 1, you can see expressions of faith, and now they believe in him more. It's really what you see. The signs continue to progress, so does understanding of Jesus and faith, especially in the lives of the disciples. Maybe this is opportunity for you as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, to say, yes, he is the Savior. Or maybe, 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 maybe you're here and you say, yes, he's the Savior, and I've just not been, been speaking up about it as much. Maybe I've been trying to find joy in other things. Realizing that all along the Savior of my soul is the true root of joy and abundance in my life. I'll never find joy in lavish generosity, in money, in things, but I can have it in Christ. This was a sign that pointed to so much. It was a sign that revealed a new age had dawned. That God was indeed faithful to his promise. And he sent the Savior, as he said. It's a, it's a point to say that God's kingdom has arrived. Not in full, but it's here. The king has come. The, the power of God is on display in and through him. He is also the one that gives an abundance and gives joy that you'll never rival. The new messianic age was a new age of hope. The law, purification rites, ceremonial cleansings, none of that could ever lead to salvation. Only faith in the Messiah could. Jesus is that Messiah. The wine he served at this wedding was only a foretaste 
of the glorious provision of joy that we will know at that great wedding feast when Jesus is not simply a guest. but He is the bridegroom himself. And he welcomes his bride in to that great wedding feast when we will be with him forever and enjoy him forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word and grateful for these signs in John. Lord, even through this sign of water being turned into wine, Lord, we see so much about Jesus and who he is and what he brings. Lord, my prayer this morning is that if if there's anybody here today or even watching our, our live stream, that have not yielded their life to Jesus by faith, God, that you would grip their hearts today and show them that he is their only hope and that he offers them something that they will never find anywhere else. Forgiveness of sins, everlasting life, and the abundance of joy. God, would you open their hearts and lead them to faith today? Father, for those who are believing, God, would you help us just to see Jesus all the more glorious, that our hope in him would be firm, that our joy in him would overflow. Father, you are good, and we are grateful. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.